Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from Leviticus 19.34, Luke 22.14-30, and 1 John 1.3. So beginning with Leviticus 19.34. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you are foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Luke 22.14-30. When the hour came... Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you the truth, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who has betrayed him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? the one who is at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And First John 1, 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Growing up in a pastor's home meant that we often had people over for dinner and for meetings. And particularly at holidays, my parents would welcome foreign students and those without family in the city to join us. And at our small church of refugee immigrants from Vietnam and Laos, I remember the smells of fresh-baked bread emanating from the kitchen, along with the steamy aroma of rice rising from the dancing rice cooker lid. I remember seeing plates of thinly sliced raw beef and raw vegetables on the counter to be assembled with rice noodles for Vietnamese pho. The smells and flavors differed from the pizza and the chicken nuggets that I and the other children would gravitate towards. And I must admit, I didn't really appreciate the cuisine until a few years later when my friends introduced me to the world of pho at restaurants. But I still remember the aromas mingled with the laughter and the buzz of conversation in the small church hall growing up. In my high school years, our home became the hangout for high school friends. I moved to the basement, and my parents didn't seem to mind or they didn't know that the basement door was always left unlocked. And overnight, my friends would show up to study at any time. Our study times were often accompanied by buckets of KFC, delivered by my classmate who worked there and always did the closing shift and he would what he called overcook and have batches that needed to be disposed of. 
And as Julie and I began our uh, family in a small home with a large backyard and a trampoline inherited from her family, our backyard became the impromptu after-church lunch and hangout spot for families and for new visitors in the church. You know, looking back, I realized that although my family lived quite simply, our, our home was nowhere, and our home was nowhere close to being Instagram-worthy, they modeled for me the kind of hospitality towards others, regardless of their background. And some of my most memorable moments with people are, who are from very different uh, from me have been around meals gathered around the table. And maybe I just really like food, but I believe that the table offers one of the greatest forms of hospitality. And in our pandemic life, I know that we, this is one of the largest sources of grief for, for me and for many of you, that in what was once a routine rhythm for most of our lives is now taken away. Today, as we continue our Called in Community series, we're going to look at how community is experienced gathered around the table. And at the table is how we move from hostility to hospitality. At the table is how we move from stranger to guest and where we experience past and future grace in the present. You know, the movement of Jesus into the world is one of true hospitality. We see it here in the scene of the Last Supper. Jesus demonstrates a kind of hospitality extended towards those who are even hostile towards him. In that, in Luke chapter 22, verse 21, he's seated at the table, he served the bread, he served the wine, and now he says, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. And they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. With the knowledge of the one who would betray him, Jesus extends hospitality towards him at the table. Now, this custom was to take a piece of bread or a piece of meat and dip it in, in, within a bread and dip it into some sauce, a common bowl of sauce at the table. And in ancient custom, perhaps even more so today, the height of disloyalty and betrayal is sharing a meal with a friend before you turn on them. Could you extend this kind of hospitality to your betrayer? Yet that's what Jesus models for us. He continues in that hospitality later that evening when he goes away from the meal to pray with his friends. The hostility arises in, uh, in, to him in the form of soldiers who come to arrest him. The gospel accounts of the scene describe a large crowd armed with lanterns and swords and clubs that arrive in the middle of the night with soldiers to arrest Jesus. Now, I want you to picture a scene like that in America. How would you, how would we expect people to respond? Good old American sensibility would tell us that we might be, like to follow Peter's lead more than Jesus's. I certainly know I would. Peter pulls out his sword and stands his ground. When a threat approaches, you attack first. When unjust claims are made against you, you launch lawsuits. Peter lops off the ear of one of the servants to show that they're not to be messed with. He's got his teacher's back. Don't try anything more. When hostility comes, you return with equal hostility. Yet what is Jesus' response in that scene? If you go down a few verses later in verse 51, Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. Rather than vengeance and violence, Jesus extends grace. In Jesus' mind, he knows betrayal and suffering and injustice are before him, yet he proceeds with grace. 
He extends hospitality and even heals those who come with hostility towards him. What gives Jesus this ability to extend this kind of hospitality? It certainly doesn't come from proving that he's the man or that he has rights to be defended. Instead, it comes from his confidence in the will of the Father. It comes from a humble recognition of God's plan. Hostility extended towards him does not demand hostility to be returned. Jesus' confidence in his identity and who he belonged to did not require vigilant self-defense. He knew that the Father would ultimately protect him. Now, in our increasingly polarized world, we expect to return hostility with hostility, offense with offense. We label and categorize the other side, whether it's a stranger or the opponent. And only when we see that it's safe or that we get something in return do we extend hospitality. But the Lord God invites us into the same kind of hospitality, extending love of Jesus. I wonder, how might our relationships change if you began to view people with hospitality rather than hostility? Extending hospitality isn't always inviting people into your space or at, at, for a meal. Extending hospitality is lowering the barriers for people to engage in a relationship with you rather than raising the barriers. Extending hospitality doesn't mean that you must agree with everything your guests might think. It is simply extending care and an invitation to a relationship with another person. And you might say, well, Andrew, I think I'm a pretty nice person. I, I like to think that I'm not hostile towards others. You know, sometimes our hostility doesn't have to be overt. Sometimes our hostility is passive in perhaps the insistence of our dietary preferences to be followed. Or our hostility is conveyed in our busyness that leaves limited time for spontaneous meals and time spent with a new friend. Our preferences, our schedules, and who we associate with are often subtle barriers that we put up that prevent meaningful relationships from deepening. In fact, our particular ideals of hospitality can in some ways be hostile. Depending on your upbringing or cultural context, there is a right way to do hospitality and a wrong way to do it. There's dress codes and decorations and guest lists and food preferences. And sometimes what we envision as hospitality involves subtly defining who, who to exclude and is hostile. You know, that etiquette changes from culture to culture. For instance, in Western culture, finishing off your plate cleanly is a sign of appreciating your host's efforts. But in Chinese culture, finishing off your plate is a signal to your host that they have not provided enough for you. It shames your host in front of the other guests. So you always leave a little bit something on your plate. Sometimes our sense of hospitality is more hostile than we think. And so getting out of our contexts and into the world of others is how we can extend true hospitality. You know, in pandemic times, sharing a meal and gathering around a table is limited. But creating, our, creating space in our schedules for Engaging with a stranger or with a new friend may be one way to extend hospitality in times that we live in now. One of the ways we move from hostility to hospitality is to be aware of how we perceive a stranger. You know, I recently discovered that my Chinese culture shares some commonalities with our indigenous American friends. 
You know, when you greet someone new, neither of our cultures uses a greeting like, hello, or good to see you, or how are you, as we're accustomed to in Western culture. Instead, both Chinese and Native American cultures greet one another with the question, have you eaten yet? That's the first thing we'll say. Or in Cantonese, it'll be, Greeting and hospitality was and is always expressed around a meal. In fact, in Native American tradition, it was common to have a large container of food near the lodge fire. You can see a picture of something like that here. Is known as the eternal cooking meal. And here in the Northeast region of uh, America, it was often a large gourd or a wooden bowl sitting over hot stones and filled with a meat or fish stew. And any traveler who was passing by, any stranger could always walk up and enjoy this meal. And as hosts, the focus was always on treating the guests or visitors as one of your own. What you had was shared with them. There were no expectations of repayment, except perhaps that the food might re be replaced in the stew with some other food that you would be able to bring. Hospitality invited further hospitality. You know, of course, history tells us that this etiquette broke down when it was not reciprocated. Yet this practice of our Native American friends and shared by many other cultures seems to be much more aligned to God's commands found in Scripture. In Leviticus 19, verse 34, that Kendra read for us earlier, it says this, When a foreigner resides, or a stranger resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing amongst you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. Rather than viewing strangers or foreigners as those, and those different from your, your tribe or your group, whatever that group might be, with suspicion and hostility, the Lord God reminds the Israelites of their duty to love foreigners and neighbors as themselves. Now, this ethic is grounded in God's love for them while they were in, uh, enslaved in Egypt. You know, a stranger is someone we, should, we, we often are suspicious of, but a guest is someone to welcome and treat with honor. Our American narrative is filled with stories of opportunity and success, but it's often accompanied by the shadow of hostility. Early settlers who worked the land and expanded westward took advantage of Native American generosity while viewing them as savages and essentially wiping out populations as they, went, as, as they spread across America, viewing them as less than human. The early success of our agricultural and industrial economy grew on the backs of African slaves. But even as voting rights and civil rights were granted through the years, the undercurrent of hostility towards the stranger still appears in the way we treat undocumented immigrants, in the way we separate children from their families, in the way we shut out certain people from our country simply because of their ethnicity or religion, and even in the way that the government designates new immigrants. The government calls them aliens. They're not regarded as fellow humans. They're, they're strangers that are othered. The history of America is built on othering. It's clear in the examples of the Native Americans and transatlantic slaves who had a different skin color and different ways of living, but even each successive wave of new immigrants had to deal with othering by the majority population. The Irish immigrants, the Greek immigrants, and the Jewish immigrants did not always enjoy the welcome they do today. Muslims now, uh, migrant farm work workers from Mexico who keep 
us fed with fresh vegetables and fruits all year round. They are the ones who are othered now. In fact, this ugliness of white supremacy depends on othering. And the toxic language heard in the January 6th insurrection is filled with invectives spoken by self-proclaimed patriots labeling liberals or tr and traitors as others. As people continue to unpack the events of January 6th, my heart breaks at the othering of the right and the othering of the left, the othering of Trump supporters and the othering of the Democrats. The language and posture is creating enemies to be feared rather than guests and neighbors to be welcomed and understood. The authentic practice of Christian hospitality is a direct response to the reality of othering in the church today. Anna Maria Pindela is a Filipina-American theologian, and she reflects on this movement from stranger to guest, from hostility to hospitality by examining the Greek words for alien and, or stranger, which is xenos. Moving from hostility to hospitality requires recognizing the difference in our hearts between xenophobia and xenophilia. Xenophobia is the fear of stranger. Fear is what keeps strangers strangers as others. And unless we're able to name our fears, then we will never progress towards true kinship and true community as the people of God. Xenophilia is the opposite. It is concern and love for the stranger, made up of the word xenos, alien, and philia, philos, which is brotherly love. In Hebrews 13, 2, we're reminded to not show, not to forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. And if you look at this Greek word for hospitality, it's made up, it's literally philo plus nexia, which is the, the form of xenos. So, love of stranger. The compound word construction of philo, brotherly love, and xenos, alien stranger. This construction even indicates love preceding the stranger. Christian hospitality is fundamentally about philonexia, the love of stranger, the love of the marginalized. And Anna Maria Pindella writes about how this philonexia, quote, signals essential mutuality that is at the heart of hospitality. Philonexia signals essential mutuality that is at the heart of hospitality. In other words, finding what we share in common is the heart of hospitality, whereas finding what is different and to be feared is the heart of hostility. Moving from stranger to guest and even friend is in fact God's own movement towards us. Recognizing the subtle distinction in our hearts between stranger and guest is what we need to start overcoming this exclusion and othering that happens in our lives and in our congregations. A Minnesota poet, Julia Dinsmore reflects, saying, whenever we notice othering, we have to interrupt that. Whenever we notice othering in our hearts or in around us, we have to interrupt it. We interrupt that othering in our hearts by moving from fear to shared concern. We interrupt that othering externally by creating space to move from stranger to guest at a place like a table and a meal. And one of the best places for that movement is when you share a meal with someone else. 
The greatest example of hospitality, of love, and, and of love for stranger, is seen in the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus. At the Last Supper with the disciples, Jesus is pointing to two important meals. He's pointing to a past grace, a past meal. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of God's past saving grace to the Israelites enslaved to Pharaoh in the Passover meal. The preservation of their firstborn sons and their liberation from slavery was not a work of their own merit or strength. They were strangers in a foreign land without resources, and they could only be delivered by the miraculous work of God and of God alone. The Lord's Supper reminds us of how, apart from an intervention of God's gracious action in Jesus, in his death and resurrection, we would remain enslaved to sin, and we would remain living under the oppression of broken power structures of this world. And so we come to the table of Jesus in a few moments to be reminded that we have been delivered from our hostility towards God in our self-rule, in our self-determination, and but also our hostility towards our friends and neighbors around us. We come to this meal recognizing that we were once strangers to God, but now we are called not just guests, but friends of God. In this meal, we find belonging as God's people only by trusting in the work of Jesus. And this, the Lord's Supper points to this past grace. But it also points to a future grace in Revelations 19.7, where John paint, uh, sees the Im image of this future meal that we will celebrate together, saying in 19.7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that's the church, has made herself ready. The Lord's Supper looks forward to this future grace, to a future grace of God's people being united with Christ in all of her glory, unblemished, perfected, and completed. And this union between God's people and Christ the King is also the focal point of the union between the new heavens and the new earth. The future meal is full of beauty and of peace and of flourishing of God's people, beholding God in all of God's fullness. Nothing is hidden because all sin, all shame, all hostility has been judged and destroyed with the arrival of Christ the King. And at this future meal, broken things are unbroken. Unjust power structures are set right. And it's in between these two meals of God's gracious hospitality that we now find ourselves living in now. This past grace and this future grace inform the present grace that God calls the church to embody with a posture of gratitude and of hope. So as we gather for meals in the present, they are more than just meals to extend our own hospitality. Our meals can point to the gracious hospitality of God, inviting the stranger to be a guest and to be a friend, inviting us to overcome our hostility, and, eat, and, and even in spite of the hospitality of uh, hostility of those we invite. Because, not because we're better people, but these are acts of gratitude and of hope in God. And this kind of hospitality that Jesus' followers are called to are to welcome strangers and even those we would consider as enemies of God into friendship with us, but ultimately with God. These are, the, these are prophetic acts declaring a different way of living in light of God's grace. And my friend, if you don't know God's grace in this way, to extend hospitality towards those who you think are on the other side, 
who are enemies, I invite you to come and meet Jesus. Because in Jesus, we are given the strength, we are given the love and the ability to extend this grace because we realize God's grace extended towards us. These meals are offered in ways to be uh, to make broken things unbroken and to set right all the injustice in our world. Every time we gather, that's what we're doing. Let's do this. Oh, our meals together are meant to proclaim what the Apostle John writes in 1 John 1.3, saying this, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. As you look forward to restaurants opening and meals together with friends, will you consider how those meals might be opportunities to embody this gracious hospitality of the living God? As you think about who you gather with, consider who is being othered, who is being excluded, and how can you lower these barriers for people to share in God's life together with you? Jesus has made it possible. And Jesus models this hospitality in this meal that he shares with his disciples that he invites us to do regularly that we're about to do in a few moments. May we move from hostility to hospitality, from seeing others as strangers and enemies to guests and friends, and proclaim boldly the past and future grace in the present, wherever we gather. Amen.